500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die g'day this is x-band the phantom podcast our website is chroniclechamber.com and you can subscribe to our podcast via youtube or through your favorite podcast apps do not forget to give us a rating on your podcast app and tell a mate about us I am Jermaine, and today I am joined by Dan. How are you, Dan? Yeah, good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, living life large at the moment, Jim, uh, and enjoying uh, enjoying things. So looking forward to today's podcast. That is good. Yes, today's podcast, we are going to be learning about a grandfather of the Australian comic industry, whose name is Peter Chapman. He has a large Australian comic and fruit history that we wanted to explore. Now, I don't know about you, Dan, but my knowledge is very limited. So <laughs> we thought it would be best to get on board some more knowledgeable people than us. So g'day, g'day Jeremy and Daniel. How are you? Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very good. It's um, great to join you all here today. Fantastic. Um, very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's it's a lovely day here in downtown Adelaide. Awesome. So, Jeremy, you have joined us before, and we first had this chat about uh, exploring Peter and his uh, history in the comics industry in Australia, but also through and the Phantom uh, in episode two hundred and fifty-two. So, thank you for again for joining us. Um. Daniel, this is your first time on the podcast. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I've listened to it a fair bit. Uh, I haven't listened to 252 of them, I have to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's quite a number. Yeah. <laughs> I have listened to, to quite a few, and I do recommend it uh, to a number of people I know that, that are huge Phantom fans and say, look, you should, should be listening to this and getting some information out of it. Whether they do or not, that's up to them, I suppose. But no, it's quite a good and very, very very thrilled to be here it's a phantom i mean far out it's that's what we all grew up on exactly now while this may be the first time you've on the podcast you actually have helped us in several in two cases uh the first one was you helped us explore the history about uh the phantom and norm brayfogle uh, which was a huge, um, I enjoyed learning about that, seeing these bits of artwork that no one had seen before. Um, so thank you for that. And then the second time you actually helped us was when we were actually able to use two of those pieces for the uh, Bushfire fundraiser book that we um, put together. Yeah, and that 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 was a no-brainer for me uh, because Norm... Uh, Norm and myself were, were as close as siblings, really, when it come down to it. We, we developed a, a friendship first and then sort of we used to say we had like a little love affair between two two heterosexual males that spanned, spanned the ocean. Uh, uh, so when he passed, it was very troubling for me and very problematic as, as it is when you lose a family member. Uh, so when, when you've reached out with the... Uh, the, the bushfire thing, uh, there was no hesitation because it's the sort of thing that when people ask me these things, 
regarding Norm. I think, what would he say? And on that one, he would have just went, yeah, what what do you need? How much art do you want? Mm. Uh, what do you want me to draw? Do you want me to draw something new? Do you want to use something I've got? Do you want Batman? Uh, being Phantom, he would have went, yes, definitely. Uh, wouldn't have hesitated. So when you asked, it was, you know, well, Norm would have said yes, so I'll say yes. Uh, and did exactly what Norm would have done, which is here's all the artwork. You pick what you want, as much or as little as you want to use, and go for it. Uh, and I was, it's, it's great to see Norm still being published today, and mm. we can still find fresh artwork to be published. And he would have been tickled pink to to think that one of his phantoms was being published in a phantom publication in Australia because he knew how much the phantom meant. To everyone here, we used to talk about it quite quite frequently, and certainly when uh, he sent that artwork over, uh, was you know the best place for it. He used to say because we're better for the Phantom to be living than Australia. So yeah, it's quite quite happy to help. And any time in the future, you know, the art's still here. Uh, Norm would probably kick me metaphorically if if I said no. <laughs> I don't, well, I, I, I don't we've got that recorded. Yeah, we've well, got I don't that even recorded now, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll hold it to that one. Uh, hopefully, so. we won't have to uh, do another mm. fundraiser for a little while, and hopefully, um, uh, there won't be anything else like the bushfire books or or, or anything like that. Um, that was quite devastating. But we are talking about Peter Chapman, so um, uh, so we'll change tack a little bit now. You, this is the first time you've uh, joined us, so we'll let our guest go first, Jeremy. Sorry, but you're. Um, your family. So we always let our guests go first. Um, so Daniel, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your history with Peter Chapman, your interactions with him uh, and, and stuff like that? And then what we'll do, we'll let Jeremy go. And then we're going to go into a little bit of a bio about Peter. Uh, and then we're going to go from there and uh, have some interesting topics. Yeah. Well, unfortunately I never met Peter, uh, which you know, there's a lot of people I really wish I'd met or at least spoken to once in my life and, and never had the opportunity to for whatever reason. Uh, so my interactions with him have always been a distance. I, I grew up a fan, obviously, because in growing up in the 70s, uh, the comic books were all over the place. You, you couldn't sneeze for having, you know, something like The Shadow or The Phantom Ranger or The Phantom or, or, or whatever, just fall out of the woodwork, those old newsprint frues and everything else. My uncle used to bring them over when he was a truck driver and he'd bring them and grey down comics and just drop them off for us to read and people up the street, you know, oh, I don't want these anymore. Do you want them? So I, I grew up with the artwork without knowing who I was looking at. It was quite different to uh, the American stuff where you knew who you were looking at because they had all the credits there. Mm. Uh, the Australian stuff, you had no idea. And you just think, God, that's really good or that's not really good. Uh, you'd see some stuff, for example, like Moira Bertram, and you'd just go, my God, that's that's just too good for a comic book. And Peter Chapman's artwork was always there uh, alongside with, with a number of other people. And it was always front and centre of, the, of the, the mind because of the sheer output that he did. All of those old newsprint comics, you, you could pick them up for like two, three cents, five cents each at, at secondhand shops. So it was great for a, for a young lad buying comic books. He just, great, I've got 50 cents, 10 comic books. Yay, I'm out of here. Full. And, and, you know, before I know it, I'm, I'm reading all this artwork. 
So fast forward, I decided uh, in about 2015 that I wasn't going to write about comic books anymore or the artists or anything because I wanted to go into writing about film and cinema. And, of course, once Gary Shalliner found out that I'd pretty much given up the game, he contacted me and said, look, this is Ledger. We need an article about Peter Chapman. So when can you have it done by? Oh, great. You know, I thought I'd given it up and hadn't. So I started delving into his life and doing the research. I thought, you know, this guy's amazing. Yeah, fascinated by it. And then I'm, as I'm going along, and I'm sure, I'm sure everyone's had this moment where, where you're looking at things and going, that was him. Oh, that, I remember that. That was great. No wonder I liked it because all of these things were this one person. So it just snowballed from there. And I thought, yeah, I do really like his artwork and I do like what he did. Uh, so it just sort of came back from, came about from there. But again, I, I had an opportunity to make a phone call and like an idiot, never did. Uh, should have, could have, would have, didn't. That's on me. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's just the growing up with him. Uh, the Shadow. I, I mean, I love The Shadow. I always thought that was such an interesting character. You know, a guy with just two isolates and nothing. You know, far better from... from the shadow that I'd previously known growing up, which of course was Orson Welles's voice, you know, what evil lurks in the heart of men and reading this comic book thinking that's not the Orson Welles shadow. What's going on here? Uh, so yeah, it was, it was just around about that doing that. So it was, I blame, I blame Gaz uh, for reigniting a love of the Australian comic book stuff, uh, the comic book scene from way back when. And it, yeah, it's just sort of gone from there. I was I was so pleased to be able to write the the Peter Chapman bio for the Ledger Awards that year. I didn't get a chance to go to the Ledgers because Gaz wanted me to go and actually do the presentation, but I we weren't able to get over there for it. We went over the following year. Uh, but yeah, that, that's where my involvement with Peter Chapman and his artwork and, and his storytelling uh, comes from. Awesome. Now, this article uh, with the ledgers, is that uh, available on the ledgers website to read or or is it only in um, like in, a, in a magazine or something for those who are interested in? It, it came out in the 2016 annual. Jeremy, uh, over to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your history with Peter, please? Um, sure. Well, um, just... Going on from what um, Daniel just said, if you look in the um, Narrabri newspapers at the time, I think somewhere online, you can actually see photos of Peter with his ledger award <laughs> holding it up. He, no, he was very pleased about that at the time. But um, I'd say just in terms of um, how I came about Peter's work, it was mostly through the book um, Panel by Panel. So that's this book here. If anyone hasn't seen it, you should really seek it out. And this particular copy is actually um, signed by Peter. So it's signed by a number of the artists, um, Peter Chapman, Monty Wed, Paul Wheelerhand, Stanley Pitt, a few of them. 
at the time. So that that's pretty amazing. But that's probably where I first discovered them. And um, what happened was um, I saw a picture of Peter Chapman in Inkspot magazine. And what had happened was he'd come to Sydney for uh, ACE, the Australian comic book exhibition, which was touring around about 95, 96. And a lot of the old artists who were still alive at the time had come for that. And um, there was particularly in the rocks at Sydney, but there are a few photos that John Clements had taken and they appeared in Inkspot. And then I saw a photo of Peter in the Narrabri Courier because I lived near Tamworth and Narrabri in the 90s and that's where I found about the his art classes. So he used to run art classes around Narrabri and um, at that time he um, some of the things I was interested in he showed me how to do was particularly some of the ways he did comic book layouts um, I got to go to his studio, see a lot of his work. So his paintings were particularly amazing. He was, he'd really progressed at that time. And um, so particularly with comics, because that was something I was interested in at the time. And he actually, um, I brought over some comic pages I'd been working on, and he actually helped me improve the layouts a lot. On There's one particular story. Um, Daniel might have actually heard of it. It was a, a comic that was published at the time called um, Knee Pockets. Knee Pockets. <laughs> There's one particular story that um, Peter helped with the layouts on, improved them a lot. So he did different overlays and things, just showing how to make it better. So I think Peter, you know, he had a philosophy that was just to um, produce art and keep doing it and you would improve. So that was something he always taught in his classes. So just just for just to jump in, sorry, Jeremy, but just for international listeners and perhaps even Australian listeners, you, you're saying the word Narrabri. So that's a town that is about six hours drive northwest of Sydney, um, about six and a half hours drive southwest of Brisbane. So really, is kind of in the middle of nowhere in New South Wales country. Um, that's um, pretty remarkable that someone of um, of Peter's. Um, import was was living in in Narrabri. Do you, do you know the story of how he came to be there? Or uh, yes, yes. So um, what had happened? He was um, born in Sydney, nineteen twenty five, and he lived in Sydney all his life. But I believe it was his um, brother in law who had a property out near Narrabri. I think it was Bar. and so he moved out there. And um, Daniel, I think you've seen um, letters that may come from there. Yeah. John Ryan, but um, he moved out there and um, his family actually had a history of art. So his uncle was Percy Liss and the political cartoonist and commercial artist who was quite famous in Australia and America. I think Peter said he never actually met him, but um, I know he was certainly inspired by that. And, um, yeah, I think he moved out to country New South Wales about 1970-ish sort of around that early period. And um, he would sometimes come back into Sydney, though, to deliver artwork. So mm -hmm. as you say, quite a long drive. That's you know, mm -hmm. five or six hours that he'd sometimes come in to deliver, particularly at that time, um, like cover paintings and things like that, Horwitz publications. Mm -hmm. And these, these are actually the proper 
towns names i know i'm sure we've got plenty of people from like sweden and america and all that thinking mate these guys are just making up towns <laughs> but these are actually their names um so yeah no wow that's interesting so dan can you please share the bio and where it came from sure. and stuff so this uh, the buyers come from this book uh, from sunbeams to sunset which is uh, a pretty extraordinary album uh, put together by Graham Cliff, who's uh, obviously um, pretty pretty keen historian of Australian comic books, and the, the subtitle is "The Rise and the Fall of the Australian Comic Book from 1924 to 1965." So, as uh, Jeremy said, Peter born in 1925, sort of at the start of the uh, I guess the era that Australian comic books were really going great guns, and uh, certainly Graham would say that. Um, Australian created comic books went through a bit of a, a death, if you like, in the mid-1960s, and um, we, well, I guess there's opportunities to talk about that as well. But anyway, the uh, so the biography of Peter is is um, comes from this book, and actually, um, clearly, Graham has a great deal of time for Peter Chapman because uh, this book is actually dedicated to the memory of Peter Chapman in particular. Um, 1925, died in 2016, so clearly not long after he was uh, awarded with that, that Ledger um, Award. So... Anyway, the, the, as I say, I'll just start just re- getting and read the bio. Peter Chapman was born in the Sydney suburb of Camaray in 1925. As a youngster, he suffered the crippling disease of poliomyelitis, which limited the cre- choice of careers that were open to him. Between 1940 and 1943, uh, he studied art full-time at East Sydney Technical College. Peter began freelancing, and by 1946, so as a 21-year-old, he was securing regular assignments from Frank Johnson. His comic strips appeared in almost 20 of Johnson's one-shot titles, and in the latter half of the of that decade, of the 40s, he wrote and drew strips for Johnson's continuing titles like Gem, New Adventure, and True Pirate. By the early 1950s, Chapman's strip artwork had appeared across a range of publishers, which included Ayers and James, Lilliput Productions, Illustrated Publications, and Associated General Publications. Um, I guess the the number of these companies gives you some idea as to the size of the Australian comic book industry at that time. Um, He was also one of the artists hired to draw Rusty and Dusty, which was an advertising strip promoting Vaseline hair tonic. Um, Eventually, most of Peter's very substantial strip output was for Fru publications, which I guess is of keen interest to us. Um, Through the 1950s in particular, Peter drew covers and created original titles for Fru, which included Angel Brigade, The Green Skeleton and Sir Falcon. And some of these are are certainly um, featured in the um, giant items that that are coming out now and, and you hear about those there. Um, he also took over and became the premier artist for Fru's The Shadow, which Daniel's already mentioned, and The Phantom Ranger. Uh, for KG Murray's Pocketman magazine, he drew 12 adventures of the crime-fighting reporter, Jimmy Smart. The early 1960s saw Chapman work with colour in books published by Australian Visual Education Proprietary Limited and Read About Publishers and contributing to Coca-Cola Australia's promotional booklets. In 1965, he took up a job in illustration and design with John Sands. That piqued my interest because John Sands did the Phantom um, greeting cards through the 1980s. I didn't know if Peter had uh, any influence there. Um, Jeremy might be able to fill us in, I don't know. Um, In the meantime, uh, in the 1970s, Chapman shifted to country New South Wales, which we've just said. Between 1970 and 1992, he freelanced to Horwitz Publications, drawing covers for the publisher's paperback Western novels. Peter also became increasingly involved in art training, which is how Jeremy got to know him. He founded his own art school in 1989 and in 1993 created his own travelling art show. 
Peter Chapman continued to teach art until 2009. Aside from the Frank Johnson one-shots, his strips appeared in 22 continuing titles, partly owing to the frequent reprinting of his work. Peter was the most prolific Australian comic book artist of the era. Summing up Peter Chapman's appearances in locally created comic books, his strips appeared in more than 400 comics. Peter Chapman died in 2016, as we said. So um, a, a massively influential person when it comes to Australian comic, um, comic strips, comic art, and we're very lucky to the to have had him uh, spend so much time working for Fru and being involved in the fandom as a result. If I recall correctly, I think he said, obviously a lot of that early work was with Frank Johnson. I think he said his very, very first work might have been for KG Murray. Some of the, like the man, that, that was how he remembered it anyway. Sure. Um, a lot of people from that era, their first work was, was KG Murray. Uh, mm-hmm. So KG Murray at that point in the... Uh, the mid forties, early forties, mid forties, through to the late forties, were just snapping up everyone, no matter where they started, and they were hugely prolific pulling out stuff, uh, not just the comic books, but as Jeremy mentioned, magazines such as Man and Adam, Man Junior, uh, whether it be a strip in there or, or little illustrations. So he would no doubt be correct in assuming that his early work would have would have appeared in there because it probably did. Mm. One thing that always impressed me with him was that he was able to produce an entire comic book at his peak. That's writing, drawing, so penciling, inking, lettering, the whole lot in a week. And that was oh, that would well. be 32 pages. He could he could pump out six pages a day, fully finished. Uh, he was that's why he was so prolific because he was so fast and so good. He could sit there and just, you know, we need a comic book, Peter. Done. Here it is. Uh, well, so he was, he was very good, very good, very quick. So that's why Jeremy's so quick as well. Ask Jeremy <laughs> to draw something, he'll do it in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I know what was also interesting is because, um, Peter was one of the people that had such a good memory and, um, you know, had worked at that early stage with Frank Johnson. A lot of the history we have now, he was able to, you know, identify a lot of artists and a lot of the um, work that he did at that time, a fair bit of it has survived. So one thing I remember was um, when they had the Pulp Confidential um, exhibition in Sydney in about 2015, Peter actually came down, Peter and his wife, and um, they had a behind-the-scenes tour with their family and they actually invited me to come along as well, which was quite amazing because they brought out a lot of the old artwork that had survived and um, Peter sort of just would went through and made comments on different things. You know, there were full art stories that they had and he, he was going through all sorts of things. He remembered all sorts of information. So um, Professor Peter Doyle, from Macquarie University has recorded a lot of information. He recorded some interviews, but, you know, a lot of the information about um, Frank Johnson was um, due to that kind of information. What had happened with the Frank Johnson original artwork was the um, publisher had kept all of the artwork and things in the shed and the State Library of New South Wales had been interested in what the more literary side. So they they purchased a lot of it, and then they found out that it was comics and pulps. So they just kind of dumped it in their collection, and a lot of it wasn't fully catalogued until many years later. 
So a lot of Peter's early artwork actually did survive, which was unusual because a lot of publishers mm -hmm. would burn all of their material. Unfortunately, um, we'll probably get to it later, but a lot of the, the fruit material <laughs> didn't oh. survive. With, with the fruit material, Jeremy, mm -hmm. I mean, you spoke, sorry, guys, you spoke mm -hmm. with Peter a fair bit. Mm -hmm. Was he able to identify the phantom pages that he drew? Uh, yes, well, he, he was, he was. So, um, ghost work. yes, yes. So what would happen um, with the, the phantoms? Generally, um, he would perhaps do a cover if um, Tommy Hughes was away on, on holiday or unavailable. So I, I sent um, Jermaine and Dan a few examples of ones that he had said, these are ones that I had done. Issue number 101 was a particular one. He said, I did that one. And issue 150 was another one that he had said, I did that one. And some of the other ones that he would do would be the giant size. Mm. So some of the, particularly mm. the wackier ones, like the Phantom and um, Shadow and Phantom Ranger all on a surfboard or <laughs> going down like on a, a water slide. That would mm. often be Peter Chapman. So that's kind of the, the grandfather of the, the wonderful Glenn Lunsden covers today. Yes. Sort of the, the weird, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's an example, they're all just. <laughs> if you're on YouTube, you'll be able to see some of these as we kind of flick through them. So this is a giant size, this is giant size number five. So did he do all the giant size covers? Or? Uh, no, no, right. he did. He probably did about the first seven. And then I think okay. John Dixon did a few. And then after that, um, it would have been, he did some of them, like it, a few of them are by another artist who we're not entirely sure who did it. Mm. But um, he definitely did at least the first seven and then a few sort of assorted ones after that. And one way you can tell is often if you see the characters here appearing in a similar style to his other work, you can tell. So you can see there that that's his Phantom Ranger, Shadow, and Sir Falcon. Mm. So that's one way of identifying it. But um, Peter did use a lot of different styles. So his Phantom mm. does not always look exactly the same. Mm. So the other one you mentioned was uh, through 101. Yeah, so that this... one, yeah, that one there, if, if you look at it, um, you can actually see that on the um, the fishermen um, there, even the ink lines do quite um, look a fair bit like some of the shadow covers. But that that's one there in particular that Peter said that he did. And I think, um, as you mentioned before, Jermaine, I think Phantom-wise, I think um, Ray Moore was an influence for sure. And even some of the other like giant size covers, you can see a, a Ray Moore influence. I think mm. he, the also, way that he, do it. he also ghosted some of the inside pages and yes. some of the panels, which yes, so, a lot of people knew. Yeah. So with with some of those ones, I think um, what would happen is sometimes um, that they would receive bromides and they were um, sort of pasted up, and mm. from the early fifties, essentially, um, Peter would often do a lot of those. The reason he might um, do them is maybe they'd arrived damaged, they'd be missing. But one of the reasons that people don't really talk about as much is sometimes they were sent in the wrong size. <laughs> so sometimes 
they wouldn't. Yes, and here's some examples mm. here that um, Kevin Patrick has identified as being um, drawn by an artist. We're not mm. entirely sure who may have done those ones. So this but... is through issue 355, mm -hmm. um, and mm. then this is one of the pages here. Yeah. So you can definitely see, uh, and then there. So in your opinion, Jeremy, would this be Peter Chapman? I know some ones that Peter definitely did. I'm not entirely sure about these ones. There were a few artists who aren't really known who did do some of this editing work as well. I know that some of the editing work was done by Tommy Hughes and some of the other editing work was done by the staff artists at Australian Consolidated Press. So I think um, one of the things to think about with um, the history of Fru is that a lot of it was tied to the publishing world and newspaper world at the time. That's where Tommy Hughes came in to do a lot of the early fruit covers, a lot of the art editing. He worked in Australian Consolidated Press, and that's where Ron Forsyth also worked. So he, Ron mm. Forsyth was with the uh, Daily Telegraph, I believe. I think Tommy Hughes was with the mostly with the Australian Women's Weekly. Mm. But a lot of the early artists and a lot of the early um, people involved were sort of involved in that area particularly sort of around that Castlereagh Street, Pitt Street area in Sydney. Yeah, right. And that's obviously where Fru had its um, had its offices for, and, and Ron Forsyth, most uh, Phantom fans would know that he's the uh, the F in Fru um, yes. from that group <laughs> of four men that um, brought it together in the first instance. Absolutely. Yeah. You're saying that Fru wasn't their full-time job? It was what, more of a, more of a hobby or? Um, well, I know particularly with Tommy Hughes, that was like it, it sort of a hobby, sort of like a second job, sort of additional money. So with um, Tommy Hughes, a lot of the covers, he would draw some. Some of them he would kind of outsource to other people who hmm. may work in the art department. So that's probably why you'll see that um, they can look very, very different, some hmm. of those covers. So some of the early ones in particular, Tommy Hughes did draw but some of the other ones were drawn by other staff members who would assist. So a lot of um, Terry Wellsby, he originally started at Australian Consolidated Press. So a lot of the early through did come from that connection. Hmm. He another, did, yeah. I know that. So you said Terry Wellsby. That's Tessa, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he... Um, I think what what happened was apparently with Tommy Hughes, eventually um, when he decided to stop doing the covers, he sent Terry as his replacement basically. But mm. Terry had already done covers. I think um, Terry was a little bit more agreeable to taking direction from Jim Shepard. So that was one reason. But... Um, yeah, that, there was that connection all the way through to at least the 80s, from the 1940s to the 80s. And, and getting back to Peter Chapman, he did say that he sort of came around about the sort of the 1949-ish. Mm. And um, his connection as well did come through um, that Daily Telegraph, Daily Mirror, Consolidated Press connection as well. Mm. So... If you're interested, the direct way that he got in 
was with the Phantom Ranger. So with the Phantom Ranger, there was a French writer called Eddie Brooker. And Eddie Brooker wasn't his real name, but his real name was something like Edward Osterman. People aren't entirely sure. But he was known as a pulp writer in France. And um, I think he did a series, and it was sort of a rough translation as the, the Master of the Invisible. So it was kind of a... You can find a lot of the covers online. So they're mostly credited to Eddie Brooker. And um, Eddie Brooker, he wrote a series for Ayers and James, which was mentioned before, called um, The Invisible Avenger, which was um, drawn by Virgil Riley. And um, Peter Chapman took over drawing that at some point. And Eddie Brooker was an early writer for Frew on The Phantom Ranger with Jeff Wilkinson. So that's how um, Peter Chapman became involved with Frew, with his connection with Eddie Brooker. And um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, just to jump in, in the Sunbeams book, um, Graham Cliff has said that uh, acknowledged um, Ed, Edward Osterman, who you said, although he said that those were uncredited. So I guess that is a bit of guesswork there. Mm-hmm. Um, he and and Graham says that um, Peter Chapman took over the Phantom Ranger effective as of issue number twenty, and then went on to create the full um, series right through till nineteen fifty nine. That's right. So the the Phantom Ranger, I've actually got. The Phantom Ranger here. So this is the Phantom Ranger number one. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah. So that was the first um, original um, creation. So the first original series done by Fru. Mm. And um, as you say, um, Dan, it was a, about issue number 20 that um, Peter took over there. And what had happened was um, with Ron, who he became quite good friends with, Ron thought that he could do a better job writing it than um, Eddie Brooker because I'm not sure if it's mentioned in Sunbeams to Sunset, but Eddie Brooker, being French, had to have a lot of his scripts translated. Mm. And so he would often write them in French or partly in French and they'd be translated. They were quite wordy. And Ron Forsythe thought that Peter Chapman could do the whole job better and quicker. So mm. that, that's really how Peter got into Fru. And that was sort of in those early days. And um, I know that um, he actually mentioned that um, it was only quite lucky that Fru actually published um, The Phantom at all. <laughs> Apparently that was just one of the ones they were offered. <laughs> they just wanted to publish a comic, being the time that it was a profitable thing to do. The Phantom was one of the ones they were offered. I think the other thing was potentially like a humour comic. Oh, but wow. they, they knew the Phantom from the Women's Mirror, so they chose the Phantom, which is lucky for all of us. Yeah. yeah. The the Phantom Ranger really was very popular at the time. I'm sure Daniel can add a bit here as well, but there was a radio show with Bud Tingwell from the castle. There was merch. Yep. I've actually got some merch here. It's a... A um, scarf. So that that was some of the merch they used to have at um, David Jones. So you've probably seen some of the ads for like cowboy hats and all Mm. those things there. So the Phantom Ranger was huge, wasn't it, Daniel? It was. It was incredibly popular. Uh, It was right up there with uh, the Lone Avenger. In fact, it took over from the Lone Avenger for for obvious reasons, which we won't get into on on a PG (laughs) broadcast. Uh, But, yeah, because... Kids in in that 
Terror loved westerns, and the Phantom Ranger appealed to them. Uh, they loved adventure. They loved the serials, all of that kind of stuff. So they first gravitated towards the Lone Avenger and then went to the Phantom Ranger, I suppose primarily because he was more, I suppose, you'd, you'd have to look at it in the sense that as a child, you couldn't be Sir Falcon. And the shadow was a bit too esoteric for for a child to to aim towards, but you could be the Phantom Ranger quite mm. easily. Did the Phantom Ranger go on to be published in Brazil? Wasn't that one of the publications that uh, Fru actually? Yes, that, that's right. Yes. RGE, and it was um, trans. I think um, the Shadow and um, Sir Falcon, and um, yeah, I think also the um, Phantom Ranger was published in the UK with those lovely yes. painted covers. Yeah, well, it's another thing about Peter Chapman is he's been published around the world and quite early on. And I know he actually told me once on the phone that he wasn't paid for any of the reprints, <laughs> but who was really at that time, sadly. He yeah. did make a, a fair bit of money, though, because at one yeah. point he was being paid, I found out that he was actually being paid £110 per week for his, his comic book artwork. And that was at a point where the average wage was just over £20. So he, I won't say he was making it like a bandit, but he was he was doing quite well. Literally, he could have bought a house with 10 weeks worth of wage and set himself up quite comfortably. So he could have made, as we all know with the creators from that era, they could have made more, should have made more. But considering what some of them were paid, peanuts for working hard, he worked hard and was paid quite a good sum of money for working hard and working fast so having said that could have trebled it would have made him happier hmm. jeremy for the uneducated fan out there what are some telltale style signs fandom fans or or fans of through or, or whatever should look for if they if they want to have a look at a free cover and is there something to look for in his in his faces in his hands or i think you made mention of his inking styles is that like a, a heavy ink or like are there any like telltale signs that um that people can look out for um i think probably the best thing would be to look at those early giant signs probably the first seven and that's a very good indicator of his style um, on the Phantom. He also, I think, probably he would have a thicker line than Tommy Hughes. So he'd often have that thick brush line on, particularly on the, like the clothes and the folds. So that's something you can notice. And I think even the faces would sort of look more like a sort of a Ray Moore type thing. Okay. Yeah. So thick on the clothes. Interesting. Well, if you go back to that first Phantom cover you showed, uh, I think it was 101, was it? Uh, way back when. You can see the really thick use of ink all over the clothes. Some of some of them, it's almost going black. Hmm. Randy's belt around the arm there. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a good indicator. I mean, his Phantom uh, was, was, I won't say generic Phantom, but it was a house-style phantom because that's what they were told to do. But mm. going on from what Jeremy was saying, 
if you don't look at his phantom and look at the other characters, you can spot him quite easily. Uh, when he's doing the other strips like The Shadow and and the other books that he did, it's quite apparent that's him uh, with his phantom. Yeah, and then you look at the background and you look at the inks there that he's, he's using there. I mean, the use of black here yeah. on the arms and the shading on the, on the back of the feathering and all of that, you know, again, his phantom is one thing. His background characters are another. Uh, did you, Jeremy, did you uh, slip them a copy of the green skeleton? Oh, oh well, that, there's the there green skeleton. There we go. Skeleton. Yeah, so. and that's a great, that's that's like the, the classic Peter Chapman one. Uh, do you, you guys know the story behind the green skeleton? No, but we would love to hear it. Love to hear it, yeah. So, so what, what happened was in the, the late 40s and early 50s, all of the uh, women's groups and the church groups and that were trying to ban comic books because they were horrific, scary. And Peter Chapman had a comic book out called The Vampire. So it was coming out for Christmas and they, they were sticking them in stockings. So you'd buy your stocking, you know, the ones we used to get as kids and they'd have lollies in them and stuff like that. So they'd all have this comic book in there called Vampire. And parents' groups were up in arms because, you know, you're sticking this horror comic, horror comic in, in children's stockings. Well, it wasn't a horror comic. Vampire was a woman detective. So because they were trying to ban that, his next comic book was The Green Skeleton, which, of course, yeah, you look at the cover, that's, that's one of the most horrific covers that came out of the 1950s. So it was almost, yeah, I would love to have asked you, did, did you do that deliberately? Just because, oh, you wanted to ban something that wasn't a horror comic. Here's a horror comic for you. Ban that, because that that is truly a scary comic. I remember seeing that as a kid, and it gave nightmares. <laughs> you know, dancing skeletons is not something you expect to see on a on a kid's comic book. Uh, so, yeah, that's how that one came about. It was it was well, an answer to to banning something that wasn't horror, claiming that it was. Well, here's the horror comic. I know the green skeleton is one that um, Glenn Ford is particularly keen to get into the giant size. You see mm. in the message from the publisher to just about every one of the new era giant size books um, calls for, you know, anyone who's got a copy of this, that or the other. And the green skeleton is always in the list of yeah. uh, wanted uh, books from, from Glenn so that he could, you know, do some scans and, and hopefully share it with, uh, with all of us. So if you've got a copy, hit up Glenn Ford. He'd love it. To, uh, he'd love to see I think Glenn, I think he found someone that may have oh, all of them, but I think they're in storage at the moment. So I, I believe it will happen. Oh, that's right. awesome. Everything's always in storage. So um, just back on the, the vampire that um, Daniel mentioned, that was actually reprinted in one of the giant size, if anyone wants to check it out. So you'll see yeah, it's, it's actually not. It's not a horror. It's not horror. It was. It. I think it just happened to be put in like show bags or Christmas stockings. Christmas stockings. It was. Yeah, yeah, and that was what caused the big kerfuffle. But yeah. as you can, you can see for yourself, it's it's all quite tame, really. I'm mm. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm correct in this one. I'll stand to be corrected otherwise. Uh, in Perth, they took a whole pile of them out and burnt them out the front of like a, a David Jones or whatever it was. It was really? going to burn all of these horrible comics and these horror comics, you know, and people were saying it's it's not a horror comic. It's a, it's a, it's like Brenda Starr. It's a detective, <laughs> but no, it's the vampire. It must be horrible. And, and to be fair, I mean, that was at a point where 
Australia had instituted a, a ban on horror films. So anything cinema-wise that had vampire in it was never coming in, uh, which prevented a few films coming in which had vampire or vamp in the titles, which weren't horror films because in the traditional sense, a vampire was a woman who would go around and vamp. Really? Strike a pose. Madonna. You know, Madonna's a vampire, a vamp. Well, I'll so tell you that's what, that's, where it all uh, came about. that's worth the YouTube subscription right there just to watch Daniel <laughs> do some vamp moves. Um, so, <laughs> um, it must have been a really um, difficult time to be a creator in Australia when there's such a conservative force moving through to, to you know, parent groups and, and uh, community groups, church groups like you, you're talking about. Um, to, did um, Jeremy, did Peter ever talk about the restrictions or the difficulties of, of trying to get stuff published without being censored or was it um, what Jermaine sort of suggested or, or Daniel sort of suggested there is a bit of a, well, I'll stick it up at, um, and, and try and double down? I think I think they were, you know, they regarded it as a bit silly. Like there'd be publications where there'd be long lists of comic books and which ones were good and which ones were bad, you know, and they, which ones were bad for your children. I think, you know, they, I think he found it kind of ridiculous about the vampire. I think he, you know, it annoyed him a little bit, but I think really he would just, do his whatever he wanted really with a lot of the comics it was just mm. producing them because as you say he produced so much you know i think it, he would just be on to the next book really yeah. and that's the thing i mean I, I think it was estimated that he had what 400 comic books put out in a 12-year period yeah i think considering all the reprints yeah. there would have would have been over 400 and if you consider all the ones overseas yeah. Like, really, he was very, 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 um, you know, published in a lot of books. And I think the other thing to consider is with the, the Fru editions he did, particularly the Shadow, um, Phantom Ranger, and even Sir Falcon, you know, they were reprinted quite a few times. So he did a certain number of original issues, but after that it was, um, you know, they were reprinted um, you know, first by Fru and then by Page Publications mm -hmm. for the showbag market. So, you know, the Phantom Ranger reached nearly 200 issues, I believe. I think yeah. it actually, um, yeah. I think the Phantom Ranger got up to about issue number 209, if you count those sort of last few um, showbag editions. Often mm -hmm. they'd have the same covers. And the Shadow um, reached about 168. So with, with The Shadow, there was the two series as well. With The Shadow, there was this first one. So this is the first issue of The Shadow. There was um, 23 issues there. And of that, Peter did issue number 13 to number 23. And then second series, some of which have been published in giant size. He did issue number one to issue number 63. But... Mm those were reprinted until about 100 issue 168 so you know over 105 issues just of reprints well and and those those issues back in the uh, when you talk about the the uh, the women the church groups i think it's on the women's groups because a lot of them were uh, now i'm not being sexist or anything it's just how it was back then the church groups were worse uh 
but the the groups that were concerned about censorship and they were concerned about comic books, it didn't stop them from selling, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of each issue. Like mm. these comic books were huge and it didn't stop cinemas giving them away. Like you'd have a, a, like a matinee of the latest John Wayne serial or whatever. It was, hey, kids, come along, get a free comic book. And, mm. you know, they'd pay their five cents, 10 cents or whatever, well, a couple of pence or whatever it was back then and get their free comic book and go in and see the movie. Uh, so these comic books, although there was groups up in arms and comic, some comic books were being banned. My favourite was the romance comics that were banned for various reasons. Uh, but these comic books were being banned, but it never prevented them from selling in numbers which... If you could get those numbers now, any creator would be so happy to have these numbers. They were literally flying off the shelves. It was great. Mm. So it just goes to show the more you try to censor, the more the kids mm. will buy it. So yeah, so maybe we need maybe we need a bit more censoring then. Um <laughs> We've talked a little bit about some interactions with uh, Ron Force Five. Um, uh, is there any others like with Jim Shepard or anything else from like a through perspective? Any stories uh, with the fandom or anything else um, like that that you well, can remember? Just a few more interesting things. I, I think um, speaking of the romance comics, um, Peter did a lot of editing and paste up, particularly of the romance comics. So similar thing to the Phantom, where he would. Um, take the bromides and you know edit them cut them up particularly like in digest size do a lot of painted covers repaint covers from overseas I think um, just some of the things in particular about the early fruit days that people might be interested in they had a very small staff which even back then they had um, Tommy Hughes with the covers um, even then he would often um, send someone around just to deliver the work. He'd never go to the office himself. So mm. often he'd either outsource the drawing or even outsource the delivery to another person there. I think um, with the, the Fru staff, um, as you probably may know, it was really Ron Forsythe and um, Peter Richardson. I think they were the, the F and the R. They were the two mm. that actually had a direct involvement. And Ron was probably one of the main people um they had you know the very small staff ron was there most of the time they'd had sort of a, a lady receptionist and she actually apparently wrote some stories as well for fru so i've heard that she may have been involved in different things i don't know precisely what she wrote but that's quite interesting that she was involved mm. in that area there um just trying to think of some interesting things. Um, I have heard I think, that story about the, yeah. the the receptionist from Kevin when we were doing a yes. yeah. So when we did an article on um, uh, female phantom riders, mm. uh, Kevin did make mention of 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 that little tidbit. Yes, oh Kevin, that article that Kevin did, which is on Chronicle Chamber, is another excellent article. The one that. Um, is still on the Chronicle Chamber to this day, the one I think called The Phantom Artist, and it's got about Peter Chapman. I think he mentions in there the story with Ron Forsythe, how they went to see the psychoanalysis, I think, and they actually went and they were trying to distill what made The Phantom popular, <laughs> and then 
put all of that into the Phantom Ranger. So that's, you know, Peter would always say, yes, you know, the Phantom was a massive influence on Sir Falcon. And, you know, he said it was, and Mm. deliberately so. You know, they wanted to to sell lots of comics. So he did, with with, um, Sir Falcon, he did the first about 20 issues of that, I think. And then John Dixon and Kick would took over as um, there was that excellent history of Kick in the Neville Bain book that you might have seen that yeah. was reprinted recently by Fur. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, particularly when Peter moved up to the Blue Mountains, he would often sort of come down once every couple of weeks. And to finish that work, to meet his deadlines, he would work very hard. So he would, you know, sometimes he would just work all night to meet that deadline. And, you know, when he was in the office, often they'd get him to do edits to the Phantom book or other books, make corrections, make changes. And as you said, he would do the entire book. So that's, you know, he would do it from writing it. He would do it from drawing it all, lettering, even the colour overlays. He would do the entire package and I know he, he told me because I was very interested in how he wrote them. And he said it was page to page. He'd just try and make it sort of end at an exciting point per page. So did he write like a script, like in a sense, you know, get a bit of paper and go box one, scene one, or did he literally just start drawing? And Well, he, he, would, he would start drawing. And to make it even quicker, Ron Forsythe actually had some of the layouts pre-printed for boxes, just to even speed it up just that little bit. Yeah, well. So that's why some, yes, some of them, they would have the panels. That's why they have that very consistent look because they were pre-printed just to speed it up just that little bit. So you didn't have to spend five minutes uh, ruling it up. Oh, wow. So would he still pencil and then ink or would he just go straight to ink? Um, I believe, well, I believe sometimes he would um, go quite closely just to ink. Like he might do some rough penciling, but um, sometimes he would go very close to straight to ink, which um, Paul Wheelerhan, I know, did a similar thing sometimes. Um, you know, especially when they're running close to deadline, they'd um, mm. do a lot of it um, close to just inks. Um, Keith Chadow, and he did quite um, rough pencils. So he was another artist who would often, you know, be doing things very quickly, meeting those deadlines. Hmm. Yeah. I think now, Keith Chatto, oh, you, and you can correct me on this germ probably, Keith Chatto had the first Australian published phantom story um, yes. published by Fruit. Was that him in the 90s? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Should have been Gary Shalliner. Yes, you know I have yes. heard that story. Um, yeah. Miles will share that. Uh, Daniel, while you um, while you make mention of it, <laughs> that's right. Throw me under a bus. <laughs> what am I saying? I threw myself because uh, Gary had a studio which was the floor above through in uh, in Sydney, really? and he used to obviously run into Jim Shepard all the time. So Jim mentioned how he was going to be doing an Australian story, and would Gary like to draw it? Gary went, sure, no problems, love to, you know, great. So it was all lined up. And then Keith came up to to see Gary to to sell a strip to him. 
And he wanted a bit too much money and Gary said, no, I'll pass on it. So he went down, Keith went downstairs, popped in to see through. And then the next time uh, Gaz ran into Jim Shepard, he said, oh, by the way, you're not doing the Phantom story anymore because Keith's doing it. Apparently undercut him. Oh, well. <laughs> I mean, but Gaz never held a grudge. He's one of these people that just went, oh, well, so be it. <laughs> so it, it was going to be a shallow, but it ended up being chateau oh, there you yeah. go. no i mean you know it's still a good story it's still a great yeah. story but yeah that, that's how that one came about could have been gaz he could have been a contender <laughs> <laughs> uh sliding doors moment so um yeah jeremy what happened to you know and i know there's a lot of original art collectors of the phantom that listen to this but also probably others that would be interested as well what happened yeah. to all the original artwork Yes, well, I know that um, Peter said that he had um, he wanted to follow up with um, Ron Forsythe and find out. And my understanding was that he asked Ron Forsythe, and it was just about all gone. And so I think most of it was either um, thrown out or burnt. I have heard some interesting stories that, like, apparently a lot of the file copies, bound editions would um, sometimes just be randomly sold by Fru um, in sort of times when they was a bit of upheaval or whatever. I did I did speak to someone recently who compiled a Fru fanzine and he had access to a lot of their file copies, which they'd sold to someone at the time. And so that's how he had information on a lot of those sort of more obscure one-shots like mm. the Green Skeleton um, scoop and some of those other ones. Mm. So I know that um, in the 90s, particularly around that ace time, some of some fans contacted Peter and, um, you know, they were interested in artwork. And because there was none, sadly, he actually drew some commissions for people. Mm-hmm. So there's an example of a commission he drew for Jim Shepard, and that one had the Phantom in it. And you've probably seen that one on the back of Giant Size Number One, all nicely coloured up. So that the original art for that is oh, quite nice. The, and large. the second iteration of Giant Size recently. That's right. That's right. So that yeah, that particular one there. So Again, if you're on YouTube, you will see this. Mm. So yes. this is actually a a Peter Chapman uh, commission for for Jim Shepard. I believe so. I believe so. I have seen the original artwork. Um, so I know when I visited his studio, he had some, either some copies or originals of ones he'd done for fans. And he said that he'd done them at the time because um, the artwork had been destroyed, sadly. So another example, if you're interested in seeing one, I think was in the, um, actually in Sunbeams to Sunset. So if you have a look in there, you can see one as well. Is that the um, the collage that's been used as the um, dedication? That's right. So I think with that one, it mostly has the older Fru characters, but the yeah. one he did for Jim Shepard had the Phantom. So um, I know that um, I think Peter did have some communication with Fru, you know, sort of later on, just occasional. And I know particularly after that ACE exhibition when, um, you know, there was some more interest in those, those times, I know he did um, speak to Jim Shepard 
and did, I believe he did that commission. And I, I know that they, you know, they did sort of discuss some of the old days because Jim Shepard did have an interest in the history. You know, he had some connection. He'd known, obviously, Ron Forsythe, Jim Shepard had known him. He'd come in at that sort of transition point where some of those people were still around and working in that period in the 80s. So I know that um, Peter Chapman did speak. You know, he he would talk to Jim Shepard and um, even just about the older history that Jim Mm. Shepard had a lot of interest in. I know that uh, Peter wrote to uh, John Ryan in 76 because John was doing panel by panel and John was asking everyone who was approaching, you know, for copies of original artwork along with comic books and that. And I've actually got a copy of the uh, the letter in front of me uh, in which Peter wrote back saying, uh, I never, ever kept original artwork from comics. Uh, when in Sydney, I'll contact through. I'm not sure whether he kept the originals or tossed them out. So mm. the follow-up letter from that was, there are no originals. So yeah. they were all gone at that point. Uh that's so sad when you think about it. All of this artwork, which just you know went into the uh, the dumpster. So he well, he, he had in, none. In the in the fandom world, quite famously, there's very little Ray Moore stuff that that's, yeah. that's survived. A lot of those early, you know, uh, Ray Moore originals, which people would love to have their hands on, they just um, just got destroyed. Um, yeah. The value placed on on the original artwork. Uh, you know, get it printed and um, then its job is done. Really appreciate it. Um, Jeremy, one of the things I do want to uh, ask you uh, as we look to wrap up, what was uh, Peter's reaction uh, when you talked to him about how you were actually doing some uh, phantom work? Yes. So um, when I um, had started doing some of those ones for free, I actually called up Peter and his, his wife, his wife Meg, and they had the same phone number. And um very, very kindly after that, they um, invited me to see that exhibition with them. That was one of the things they, and um, there was one cover of mine he, he did quite like. I think it was um, maybe 1,718 was particular one. I actually sent it to him in the post and he, I spoke to him on the phone and he did like that one. He said it was pretty good. And, oh, nice. Um, yeah, so one one thing that I was very happy about was um, there was an interview he'd done around the time of the the Ledger Award and the um, the exhibition and things, sort of that 2015, 2016 period, and he actually mentioned me in one of them. So that was, I felt very good there where he, you know, he mentioned that, um, you know, someone who'd been a student is now working on something that he used to work on. So that was that was really nice, and also um, Peter's wife is um, very active with the Giant Size. Uh, you know all of the things that are published in there. Glenn Ford, you know, goes through and gets her permission. She gets paid, all those things there, and she's a lovely lady. I, I sometimes hear from her on Facebook. She's a lovely person. So mm. that the whole Chapman family are really nice people. That's wonderful. That's um yeah, it's great to hear about uh, Glenn like doing it properly as well which a lot oh, of yes. mm. a lot of um comic past comic publishers would, would not even bother doing so it's uh no it's with well i about. mean with with glenn you know he works with the wheelerhand family the dixon family all of the, the different families 
who of the comic book series prints. So there's some, you know, some really interesting rare things that are going to come at some point. Some missing issues of material that have been found. There's some exciting things. Oh, wow. I've seen some of them, and um, I think the yeah giant size is going to have some good stuff. I, I think with Glenn, it, it comes a lot of his outlook on doing this comes from being an artist himself for, for as many years as he as he was and has been. Uh, I'm sure he's got his own stories of of woe. Uh, mm. I know every encounter I've had with Glenn has just been nothing but positive. It's been great. Uh, last time I saw him was in Sydney where we sat down after a ledger and uh, proceeded to get everyone drunk and uh, he made a beeline for me, sat me down and we just spoke for, for a good hour and a half, uh, which, you know, I really appreciated. He's, he's a lovely, lovely guy. But, yeah, I think the way he, he deals with the states and the way he deals with creators is probably as good as anyone I've ever heard. Uh, mm. Everyone gets paid for everything they do. Everyone gets recognition. Everyone gets credit. It's how it should be. Yeah, um, I agree. Creators should be recognised and they should be uh, compensated properly. And families of creators, uh, instead of being ignored because, oh, well, that was your dad or that was your mum or your grandparents and who cares, uh, they should be compensated. So Glenn's doing the right thing. He's doing the good thing. And, mm. you know, to be honest, the comic book industry could use more of Glenn and Glenn Ford than what they could pretty much anyone else I can think of. Very well said. Uh, so thank you for that. Now, I guess one of the one of the last questions I want to ask you um, uh, is where does Peter's work, in your opinions, uh, Daniel and Jeremy, to the importance of Australia comic history? Um, I think, well, just one thing, like even just his art school that he did you know from the 70s i think he said that he was inspired after he saw an art class that wasn't going so well in wee war in country new south wales and um he started helping at the the tafe sort of around there i think um john ducker the principal at the tafe asked him if he was interested in teaching and um you know i think once he wasn't as happy with the curriculum at the tafe he started his own school in 1989, and that was touring around big areas of country New South Wales from 1993 until about 2009. So, you know, all of the artists, you know, some some of them have been sort of comics illustration, but so many people that, you know, in country New South Wales who he taught and, you know, people he inspired, I think one of the major things that... Um, he did was introducing Phil Belbin to Australian comics. Yes. Phil Belbin was his friend and has been huge influence. And that's, that's how he got into comics through Peter Chapman. I think my take on it would be you, you can't underestimate the importance of someone like Peter Chapman. When you look at Jeremy, for example, that he was a guy who Peter Chapman, that is that drew so much and did so much and where a lot of his peers, when the, the comic book boom finished in the early 60s, just vanished uh, or went on to other things and just you'd never heard from them or they just didn't bother, uh, he kept going and he kept giving back 
and the fact mm. that he he trained with his art school so many people and you see the success with Jeremy and other people that he did. Now, Jeremy will pass on those lessons to other people. So Peter Chapman's work ethic, his ability to draw, his ability to create lives on and it will continue to go on and on and on. And not just on an inspirational level, but on a practical level. Uh, no one comes to Jeremy and says, I'm having problems with this or this layout or whatever. He's going to sit there and go, you should try this, that, and the other. And these are lessons that he learned by going to Peter Chapman. He went, you should try this, that, or the other. And then the next person that comes to that person that Jeremy teaches and someone comes up to them and says, I'm having problems. They go, well, try this. And what they won't realize is they're applying lessons that Peter Chapman learned way back when. And that's the whole thing is to, to carry it on to keep on giving. So his influence is his legacy. We're still talking about him. Mm. We're still talking about his work. And we're talking about work that was done before any of us were, were around on the planet. I mean, this was work that our grandparents bought, to be quite honest. And that's the thing. We still talk about him. A lot of his peers we don't talk about. Peter Chapman we do, and we still will. So that to me me is the influence and legacy lives on and that's the best thing that anybody can ever hope for is that they're not forgotten and, and that what they did had an impact and he's still having an impact to this day yes he's still printed you know to this day in giant size and you know a lot of people may not even realize but he he did go back to a painting covers mm. you know i think the eight 1987 to the 90s he was doing covers for horwitz on their reissues of Larry and Stretch, J.E. McDonald novels. So, you know, he had a career, a long career from the 40s until the 2000s. Mm. It's one of the longest careers ever. And he was the most prolific artist. I think really he's had a huge impact just all in all those areas. His career continues on, Jeremy, through you and through others. And that's... You know, that that's something which we all would love to aspire to, that, you know, our our legacies and our careers will live on through people that we've never met and never known and people we have met and known, and they'll continue on until long after we go on. And, and his will, his is. Every mm. phantom cover you do, Jeremy, is in a way, Peter Chapman's got a little little bit of ink on there, just a little smidgen, and that's all it needs. Mm. Mm. very well said sorry one question that's going to bug me if i don't ask this i'll, I'll regret it but uh, right at the very start jeremy i i mentioned uh, in part of the biography was that um peter chapman had um had suffered from poliomyelitis um and was affected by polio i've got a um an uncle-in-law um who would be one of the last people i would have thought in australia to get polio before the vaccine came in and and he's leg is buggered to this day to be honest uh, what effect did polio have on peter and um did was that a long-lasting effect he took that through to the grave so to speak so well one one of the effects was that it gave him a lot of time to draw yeah. um i think that was something he'd always say it gave him a lot of practice in drawing with both hands so he could do that quite well and i think you know sort of he got to a very good standard at an early age and I think it was like his artwork, his mum showed it to a, a salesman. And the salesman recommended him 
go to um, the TAFE, and that's how he's everything sort of started. But it did, like, it did have an impact on him, and I know later in life, it did have a bit of an impact with him too. So yeah, it it did have an impact through his life, sort of getting him into drawing, but sort of later on as well in his life. Yeah, cool. Thanks. I just uh, that's been bugging me ever since I read it out right at the start. So. And I, I well, I know you mentioned as well about the John Sands. So um, with with, uh, the John Sands, I know that um, there was an exhibition of a lot of that. Um, There was a book as well, um, the Macquarie University, that um, if anyone wants to can seek that out. But I don't think he did the the phantom greeting cards, but he did do a lot of other greeting cards for John Sands. He did a lot of wrapping papers, a lot of things. Like he, he was so quick, he did an entire encyclopedia set. So he did the color illustrations for that. He um, he did do a lot of material there for the John Sands Company. Oh, wow. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Daniel and Jeremy, for joining us. Um, if there is anyone that wants to find out more about us, our website is chroniclechamber.com, and you can email us at chroniclechamber at gmail.com. You can send us your thoughts, your feedback, and your opinions via that or via our social media platforms or over at the YouTube channel. Now, you can subscribe to us via YouTube or through your favourite podcast apps, including iTunes or Spotify. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed learning about Peter. And for myself, happy phantoming. Happy phantoming, everybody. You guys can say happy phantoming as well. Happy phantoming. Happy phantoming. Phantoms always there, but you won't find the